Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, I'm Piers Cotting, and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast today for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. This week, I'm joined by two academic neurologists from University College London, and I have to be a bit careful because one of them is my boss, to discuss their rather unique work on the concept of a cognitive footprint. So hello and welcome to Professor Martin Rosser and Professor Parashkev Nacher. So Martin, Parashkev, before I get going, can I ask you to both introduce yourselves and just tell us a little bit about your background? Yes, I'm uh, Martin Rosser. I'm a, a clinical neurologist with a particular interest in cognitive disorders, and I am the NIHR Director for Dementia Research. And I'm Parashkev Nachev. I'm a neurologist whose research work is primarily focused on the application of complex models to uh, uh, predominantly patients with, with focal brain injury. Fantastic. Thank you. So back in July 2015, Professor Rosser and Professor Martin Knapp from the London School of Economics published a paper in The Lancet entitled Can We Model a Cognitive Footprint of Interventions and Policies to Help Meet the Global Challenge of Dementia? So, Martin, obviously we've all heard and understand the concept of carbon footprint, but can you explain what the concept of a cognitive footprint is? Well, it is very similar to a carbon footprint, um, So the intention was, can we develop a measure of cognition? By that, the the summation of um, an individual's cognitive skills, such that they can maximise them. And that can be applied to an individual or to a, a group or to a society. And this came about partly from the fact that we tend to forget just how variable um and fluid our cognition is. It fluctuates quite a lot during the day and it can fluctuate through our lifetime. So the question was, can we develop a metric, and yes, it in a sense plagiarised the carbon footprint, that can give us both the, the effect size of an intervention, but also the duration of it, because that's often something that's, that's forgotten about. Okay, I understand. So could you give us an example, like flesh it out, with an example where you might use such a metric? Well, maybe going to um, a policy level. Um, so a lot of drugs that we use for everyday conditions have cognitive side effects. And we, we all experience that. They may make us feel rather sleepy, drowsy. That's the commonest side effect. So if we took a, um, a disorder that we don't normally think of as being related to cognition. Actually, a, 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 quite a good one might be hay fever, because in the past, um, the drugs we used had, had a lot of drowsiness as a side effect. So when one does a randomised trial, let's say we've got two drugs, um, and we want to know if they're any good at treating hay fever. Let's say they're the same. But if we assess cognition such that we can determine the cognitive footprint, so what we want to know is not only the effect size, but also the fact that somebody who's on this may be on it for three months a year for the next 20 years. So that's a much bigger uh, footprint than if they're just on a drug for a week. If 
both of those drugs are exactly the same in dealing with the primary disease for which they're designed, then you go for the one with the positive or least negative cognitive footprint. OK, that's really interesting. And so you talk there about the length of effect. So presumably this could be used for making decisions, for example, in, in um, public health interventions to decide, um, you know, of different interventions that might uh, you might implement when you might implement them based on the overall cognitive footprint over a lifetime rather than a short-term effect that, that a measure might have. Absolutely. Okay. So that paper was put out in 2015. How has the research community rallied, responded to the concept? Well, there's been a lot of interest uh, in terms of emails and comments. The challenge, of course, is pinning it down, operationalising it, um, and getting up a programme of work that will explore the different components. And that's very much the work in progress. We'll come to that in a moment. In, in the original paper, Martin, you said that in a post-industrial society, cognitive functions fundamental to meeting our challenges and driving innovation. So how well recognised do you think this is by policymakers and by, by people at large? I have a sense that it's not been highlighted which is unusual because it is quintessentially what makes an organism function and particularly for humans and our cognitive abilities and this is not this is maximizing an individual and a society's cognitive uh, abilities are what have allowed us to meet many challenges in in, in human history We've not been very good at brain health. We've been very good at heart health. We've been less good at brain health. Um, and I think it's not really been a focus of policy. So this work broadly is aimed at that, at changing that conversation by being able to measure and quantify and explain the impact it of It is, and slightly, um, for me, to broaden it from where brain health is, I think, at the moment, where an awful lot of effort is on how do we prevent decline in late life, um, prevent dementias. That's very important. Hopefully cognitive footprint would have a role in that. But it is also that if during our 80 years we've got something that has a small effect, um, and I gave an example of a, a medication before, that has an effect over 30 or 40 years, that adds up to having a year a much more severe cognitive impairment. And we need to be able to make that sort of balance. Really interesting. Prashkev, um, so I understand you're exploring the relationship between uh, the, co or the relationship of cognition to place using a novel statistical method, geostatistical modelling. Can you explain what that is and how you're using it in this cognitive footprint? Yes, yeah, so here we have two very complex patterns. One is the pattern of cognitive dysfunction that, that might occur in any person, uh, either because of some external influence or because of a disease process. And then there is the complex pattern of factors that exacerbate or alleviate that. And the question is, how can we find some kind of order that connects the two? And what's attractive about thinking about space is that it is a dimension along which external factors, but also populations themselves, are grouped. And so if we can derive insights into the spatial organisation of these patterns, the patterns of factors that influence our cognition, then we might be able to gain some insights 
into what it is that we can modify in order to improve cognition within a particular place. Now, it turns out that actually computing spatial effects is quite difficult. And even though geostatistics is a relatively mature discipline, you don't often see beautiful maps of, of geographical distributions of risks of illness, for example, or any other kind of influence. And so what we did was to take a very mature, very sophisticated way of examining spatial relations, the statistical parametric mapping framework applied to brains, those beautiful colored maps that you see of the brain lighting up when you do X, Y, or Z, and essentially translate the same formal uh, approach to modeling to geography. And it turns out that just as it's worked beautifully in the brain, it also works beautifully in relation to mapping space. And it may well turn out to be far more efficient, far easier to deploy, and so potentially a powerful tool to understand these complex relationships. Okay, so if, if for our sort of neuroscience listeners, instead of modelling the relationship between cognition to the anatomy of someone's brain, you're essentially using the same principles to map the relationship between their cognition and their their life, where, where they live their life. That's right. And in fact, those who are familiar with SPM will find that they'll have a little toolbox that will allow them to press more or less the same buttons, but produce a completely different picture. Picture not of the brain, but picture of the geography of the patients that they're studying. So we'll come on to later how, how our listeners and, and, and early career researchers might respond to the challenge of developing a cognitive footprint. But you're saying those that are already familiar with the techniques might find this really accessible. Yes, certainly to the extent to which... Uh, we're talking about the spatial component. Yeah. So, Prashkev, Martin me uh, mentioned measuring cognitive footprint, creating uh, a metric. Um, but cognition is, as you've already discussed, really multidimensional and can be affected by a number of factors. Uh, Martin talked about the sort of short and long-term nature of, uh, of cognition. Um, I imagine it's quite challenging to develop a metric. How are you going about that? Well, so... Uh, clearly, there's the multidimensionality, the idea that, that thinking any kind of thought can be applied within a, a variety of domains, and the fact that someone is good at one thing doesn't necessarily mean that they won't have trouble in another. So the dimensionality is one aspect. But the other thing about cognition is that it doesn't have the visibility of many other uh, deficits uh, or, or indeed abilities, because it is only deployed in a particular context, and so it's very hard for us to see it. And in order for us to measure the impact of an external influence, in order for us to know how capable somebody is of doing something, we clearly need to recreate the context in which that ability is tested. Now, it's easy when you're talking about sums. You can simply present them with an equation to solve or whatever. But what happens when the nature of the ability it itself requires a very complex environment? Let's take, for example, the abilities that are necessary in order for us to plan our lives. Essentially what you need to do is recreate life planning in a laboratory. That's not easy. And so it is the, the fundamental complexity of the, 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 the sorts of powers that are deployed in the process of cognition that makes assaying them very difficult. And this is where we need to think very carefully about how we come up with a, a, a suite of, of measures that is both comprehensive but at the same time reasonably compact so that we can actually isolate uh, reasonably uh, tractable metrics from individual patients. And is that an endeavour that you're doing very much here within your own research group at UCL or is that something that is really 
you know that you're working with others on or, or working f from the work of others you know looking at ways to measure that may already exist and adapting them for this this purpose well I, I suspect that the ultimate solution would be to see what parallels there are what collinearities there exist across the huge corpus of tests that have been deployed in, in neuropsychology over many decades, centuries almost, and to see how it is that if we extract the intelligence of our previous experience from, from the application of these tests, is there a common deep structure that we can pull out that will then allow us to produce a test that is both compact and comprehensive? And this is an area where we feel machine learning has much to offer because it allows us to to transform that kind of synoptic perspective from a, from a huge huge uh, set of of um, of, uh, of previous evidence from a, a very heterogeneous set of tests and to use that in order to extract a unified test that essentially combines all of them into one rolls them up into one form without being reductive without the resultant picture being too lossy, because that's the problem. You need to maintain the detail, otherwise we won't have sufficient individuating power. And where have you got to on that journey, Martin, in terms of in terms of the development of that measurement tool? Oh, it, it, it's still early days. I think um, there is a bit of a tension here. So it's it's a tension between lumping and splitting. Although I wouldn't like necessarily to use the lumping to um, Kraskov's uh, comments about being able to summate things, but we've been very good at understanding cortical modules for doing particular tasks. Um, and people have attempted summation, but it, it, it's always been a little bit difficult, and you, you, you lose, as you say, some of that, that richness. In order to get a cognitive footprint, we don't necessarily have to have that sort of holy grail of something that can capture everything. There are some functions like attention which are very important, underlie an awful lot of how we interact with the environment and which are quite sensitive to some of those short-term and day-to-day -day fluctuations. And although it may be impartial, there's nothing to stop one creating or measuring a cognitive footprint that might just be subtended on a measure of attention um, that, again, can give you that sense of integrating over time and give you the area under the curve. But this is still, you know, one's feeling one's way. Yeah, so I guess eventually you will see the application of this in large sort of real-world populations where you'll need to measure things that are measurable in those environments. But right now, it's a matter of doing the, the basic science, as it were, to understand how you'll develop those measures or which which surrogate measures you'll be able to use, like attention. Yes, I'm absolutely right. And I think um, you can have small-scale um, cognitive footprint uh, Exercise might be a good, good example. You can, um, if you do a lot of exercise, um, there is evidence that, it, in fact, you don't perform so well immediately afterwards. You're just tired. And you know, if you had a lot of lactic acid in your, muddle, in your muscles, you tend to want to curl up the next day and hide away in a safe cave. 
but then you've got the longer term benefits um, and it's exploring that so that you can maximize for the individual at a, a policy level for societies and I think that's a very interesting area and I think there are some which are of particular interest to the geostatistical modeling and some of the big problems we have um, for example around global warming so pollution is very much a, a spatial problem and you know there's increasing evidence that this really is bad for cognition the cognitive footprint of exposure to pollution as a child is massive because it may have an effect over a lifetime that's really interesting in, in your original paper you identified a whole range of areas so there you've talked about one i mean you mentioned uh, health social care education criminal justice transport uh, sport employment um so you've mentioned the environment and pollution given both from a, a uk perspective we've got a lot of listeners from the uk but also a lot of listeners um from overseas where do you see areas uh, other areas what other areas of sort of policy do you see that might help you sort of connect in and drive this concept forward i mean it's really to both of you where, where's the pull you said earlier that you're not sure this has got traction yet and yet you're very convincing and convinced that it needs to have so where's the pull over the next few years coming from from a policy from a macro level I mean, pulls come once you once we can give a push of this is something that's tractable and measurable. I think is the key thing. For me, um, the the concept of just focusing on cognition and effects that may be relatively small at an individual level are really very important. Um, globally, there are some diseases that. I was taught really didn't have much in the way of cognitive effects, um, but are very widespread, like neurocystis psychosis. Um, yes, it has cognitive effect because people can get seizures, but the view as well doesn't have that much of an effect, but it does. Um, it's not the size of an effect of Alzheimer's disease, but when you consider that it affects young children, people may suffer from the effects over a lifetime, and it is one of the major WHO um, diseases in terms of prevalence, this has got a big cognitive footprint, I would guess. Yes, I mean, if we were in power, then of course we would <laughs> impose it, um, but we're not. And those who are in power, I suppose, get most excited about the economics of life. And one can see uh, this as uh, perhaps uh, most persuasively sitting at the intersection between economics, healthcare, um, and um, uh, uh, and I suppose um, uh, you know social organisation. How do you actually change society so that we both live better and are more productive? And actually, this is an area of interest to uh, the charity who's supporting this work, the Health Foundation. And I suppose if we are able to quantify in economic terms what the benefit of being able to improve our cognitive function, then that might make politicians, who are, I suppose, the ultimate decision makers, sit up and listen, at least a bit more closely. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. I think, and I think, you make a, a a compelling case, and have given lots of examples that this is a potential, uh, a concept that's potentially interesting to a very wide 
selection of the research community for sure. I mean, you'll be looking to pull people in from all sorts of disciplines and all sorts of domains. Um, and as you know, I've mentioned uh, uh, that our podcast listeners are largely early career researchers. Um, so how can they get involved? I and mean, what's your message to, to our listeners in terms of what they can do and how they can help take the concept forward? We're very keen to have people's ideas and questions. Um, so we are setting up a website um, which can provide a, a form for people to just discuss ideas and questions. And I, I think that can be really, really helpful. If somebody thinks, oh, that sounds quite interesting, and they're thinking about it, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. And what we're developing is a suite of tools uh, embodied in software that others can deploy uh, in, in relation to their own problems. And, and actually, the more evidence we have that the approach, uh, both on the... Uh, on the side of, of the way in which we think about cognition, but also in terms of the spatial modeling, the more evidence that we can bring that uh, it does actually work, it does produce, uh, um, it does yield insights uh, that appear to illuminate the fundamental processes that, that we're trying to uncover here, then um, the more persuasive I think the overall approach will be. So I think we're coming pretty much to the end now um any final points either of you'd like to make before we draw it to a close you've persuaded me Prashkev. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both thank you so if any of our listeners have anything to add on this topic and i think there's been a, a call to action from uh, from martin please do post your comments on the website or drop us a line on twitter using the hashtag ecr dementia as well as daily posts, jobs, funding opportunities and events, our website also has profiles on all of our podcast panellists and we'll have information on the website that Martin uh, mentioned, so please do visit there to find out more. There you'll also find a transcript of this podcast, so please do tell any colleagues who may not be able to listen. In our WhatsApp community group, we host a fortnightly themed discussion to talk about the topics from our podcasts. Details on how to join can be found on our Twitter feed, and in the Ask an Expert area of the website. So we'll look forward to chatting about Cognitive Footprint there in a week's time. Finally, please remember to subscribe and leave a review of this podcast through our website, iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Soundcloud. And please tell your friends and colleagues. Thank you. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.